Welcome to the Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of the Litigation War Room, I speak with legendary California litigator, Dan Callahan. Dan has the rare distinction of having achieved record verdicts and settlements in business, personal injury, insurance bad faith, and employment litigation. In this interview, Dan explains how he litigated a number of different cases, including Beckman Coulter v. Flextronics, a business contract and fraud case in which the jury awarded his client $934 million. Dan also talks about his creative approach to achieving success in what he calls impossible cases. I know the litigators out there will get a lot out of this fascinating interview. Dan Callahan, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, Dan. I am excited about this one. You've had some amazing victories and have some really uh, interesting, entertaining stories to tell and some real insights about litigation and trial practice. And I'm looking forward to getting into those. But before we dive in, can you tell our listeners just a bit about yourself, about your practice and your law firm? Well, certainly. I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law for over 40 years. Uh, Right now, I'm running Callahan Consulting, which is a firm that uh, does two things. I uh, work with attorneys and help them strategize on uh, trial tactics and procedures. I also work with clients to help them find the appropriate attorney for their needs. They may need an employment lawyer or an IP lawyer. I can find the appropriate person in their community. Then I put the two of them in touch with one another. That's great. So kind of a matchmaker service, so to speak. Yes, exactly. You know, I can't say that I've heard of another attorney who's done this. Is this your own business model? It's a brilliant one, considering the the career you have and the the kind of insights you must be able to provide. But is this uh, something that you invented? Well, actually, I've moved from California to Puerto Rico. And in Puerto Rico, if I have a consulting company like I do, I can then provide services to people in the United States. And the tax, state and federal combined, is 4%. So that's a heck of a lot better than the 52% I was paying in California. You're making Puerto Rico look very attractive right now. (laughs) Well, Dan, you've had some record-breaking verdicts, record-breaking settlements, and we're going to talk about a couple of them in more detail. But can you just kind of give listeners just a quick overview of your career's had a lot of highlights, but some of these highlights... Max, I'd be happy to do that. I'm a litigator and a trial lawyer, and I set a number of records. By example, in the Beckman Coulter case versus Flextronics, I have a jury verdict unanimous for $934 million. That was the highest and is the highest in Orange County history. I have a personal injury uh, settlement right before trial for $50 million, which I've been told at that time was the highest personal injury settlement in the history of the United States. I also have an insurance bad faith judgment, $58 million, against farmers, and uh, that is the highest insurance bad faith judgment in Orange County. And uh, lastly, I have the highest employment settlement during trial in Orange County history at $38 million. So the only similarity in all of this is going to trial and litigating cases, various specialties. Oh, I also set nationwide precedent in getting insurance coverage for patent infringement under a slip and fall policy. 
And that was written up in the Wall Street Journal. I traveled around the nation. I told all the patent lawyers how they could do it. They'd wake up in the morning and not know how to do it, but they'd call me. So I handled those cases all throughout the United States. I would have thought the insurers would be going and rewriting all their policies after that. Well, they, they did, actually. They rewrote them, and then they, we still hit them again. Then they rewrote them again. Then finally they said, we do not cover patent infringement. Now, what stands out about that outline, apart from the just eye-popping numbers of those settlements and verdicts, is the variety of cases you handle. And I've got to say, I think you're probably a rare bird these days. I mean, you listed record-breaking verdicts and settlements in, I think the first one was a business case, a personal injury case, a bad faith insurance case, and you mentioned employment. Insurance coverage as well. Right. That's the patent case. How did that evolve? I mean, were you always a generalist, so to speak, within litigation or... How did it come about that you have all these, these verdicts in various different areas? I was always interested in litigation. And uh, I started out with a large law firm in Hawaii and then a large law firm in Newport Beach, uh, where I did business banking construction litigation. I opened up my own office on St. Patrick's Day in 1984, doing the same thing. And I continued doing that for about 20 years. Oh, I got into insurance bad faith in the late 80s. And then uh, I got into personal injury probably around 1995 or so. I have a knack for being persuasive in the courtroom. And I think that comes from my diligence. I prepare extremely hard for all of my cases. I guess I don't want to be embarrassed in the courtroom. So I do the best I can. And so I also prepare to meet the big bad wolf, the Goliath in the courtroom. So I make my opposition into Goliath. And when we show up in trial, they're really not Goliath. But I'm prepared to beat Goliath. And that's why I get the results. That's amazing. Yeah. So certainly just hard work, preparation, being ready for absolutely anything so that there really is nothing that uh, you haven't considered beforehand. And creativity. You need to have creativity. Well, that was where I was going next because, you know, when you and I, well, one, I've done my diligence on you and uh, just when you and I were chatting last time, what really stands out is some of your creative approaches to some, some of your cases, some of your big cases, some of your smaller cases too. You seem to find these are amazing uh, solutions to your clients' legal problems. Yeah, you've got to look outside the box. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Now, these are not big dollar cases, but they're very creative. Uh, by example, there's one where I represented Radco. Radco is a company in Arizona. They provided materials to a job site uh, in Stockton, urethane foam and 55-gallon drums, but they were not being paid by the subcontractor. So they called me. They wanted to get a mechanics lien. I said, well, do you serve a 20-day notice? And they said, what's a 20-day notice? Well, it's a prerequisite to getting a mechanic lien. So I said, well, can you go to the job site, pick up the 55-gallon drums and drive them around the block and drop them off again? And uh, they said, no, they're locked up in a warehouse. To give a 20-day notice, you have to give it within 20 days of releasing possession of uh -huh, the goods. Okay. So if we retook possession, we can then <laughs> right. give the 20-day notice. And you have to give the owner some kind of notice that you may have a lien out there. So you have to let the owner know he has potential exposure. So what happened is Radco told me during the course of the conversation that they provided this stuff to MidState on credit while they were insolvent or basically could not pay their debts as due. And I remember from studying the UCC that if you sell goods to somebody who is insolvent and you sell it on credit, you can reclaim those goods. And when you reclaim those goods, you get, quote, constructive possession. 
So you can reclaim them on paper. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going down there and grabbing them physically, but you can give them notice that I am reclaiming these goods. Well, that was my argument, and uh, there's no there's no authority for it. But I that's what I did. And I gave them notice that we're reclaiming the goods. And then I gave them notice we're releasing the goods. And then I served a 20-day notice, <laughs> and the goods never moved. So Diamond Walnut, the owner of the facility, I talked to the council, and he thought I was crazy. So he paid Mid-State anyway, even though I told him not to. I sued, and then Mid, or pardon me, Diamond Walnut had to pay us. So they wound up paying for the same goods twice. So that was creative lawyering. Yeah, really. And I mentioned the UCC. Another example of a case I had with the UCC, I represented a MESBIC, a Minority Enterprise Small Business Investment Company. They made loans, and they made a loan to one company that did not pay. Uh, so now you can send a demand letter, you can serve a complaint, but the client was concerned that all this collateral would disappear if we went the normal way. So what I did, I thought, well, we could do a self-help repossession under the UCC. So I prepared a, I prepared a document, and the document, I put it on legal-sized paper, I made it look like a real document, and I filled in the blanks with the name of the client and all, everything, and I put in the, the statute for self-help repossession. I signed it, and I had my signature notarized, and then I went to the Irvine police, and I said, I'd like you to come with me for this self-help repossession to make sure there's no breach of the peace. And they said, well, I'll go with you to make sure you don't breach the peace. And Dan, just to pause here for our listeners who come from uh, all different or, you know, practice all in all different areas of litigation, this procedure is not exactly by the book, right? Maybe it should be. <laughs> but you said you're emphasizing, well, I put it on legal size paper and I filled in all the blanks and I even had it notarized. Um, it's by the book in the sense of complying with the UCC, but you make it sound like it's almost a, a standard form, but it's anything but, right? Oh, no, it's not standard at all. I don't know anybody, anybody's ever done that. But the idea was for me to be able to trick them into allowing me to repossess the collateral without them or me breaching the peace. So I hired a flatbed truck with a uh, forklift on it. And I went, had the Irvine policeman, Officer Cluck, come with me. And this is back in the 80s when we, nobody had a cell phone with a video camera. So I hired a guy from L.A. to come. So the three of us come in like an arrow. I've got a th three-piece navy blue suit. And I go up to him at the big warehouse. The door's open. Here we come. And uh, I tell him, I'm, my name is Dan Callahan. I represent the SBA. We're here to repossess the collateral. And if you help me, then we will not sue you personally. But we are suing the CEO who I named. And the guy was, uh, oh, okay, well, yeah, this is the collateral here, this, 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 and that. We took our forklift, we loaded all this stuff on the flatbed truck until our forklift ran out of gas. But they had pointed out a forklift to me, so I used their forklift to pick up our forklift and finished loading everything up. I got a call that afternoon from the attorney who represents the debtor. And he said, is it true all they had to do is say no? I said, yeah, pretty much that's true. He laughed. He said, oh, congratulations on your sting. <laughs> but that's creativity, right? Yeah, right. It's creativity, but within the bounds of the law. And right. That, I mean, it reminds me of something from the movies or an episode of Leverage or, or something. So It was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's turn and look at a couple of your cases. I mean, you know, you're somebody, you know, we could probably do a whole 10-part series. But I do want to talk about a couple of your big wins in a couple different areas. Um, let's start with the Naria case. Uh, you represented the plaintiff in a case called Naria, I think I'm pronouncing that right, versus yes, City of are. Dana Point. And for our yes. listeners, Dana Point, 
That's a city in Southern California, right? Yeah, south of Los Angeles by about an hour. So in that case, there is two women that were jogging in the bike lane in Dana Point, and they got hit by an uninsured drunk driver. They were rendered quadriplegic. Uh, other lawyers looked at the case but didn't take it because there's no money there. Who are you going to sue? An uninsured drunk driver who got four, sentenced to four years. I, on the other hand, uh, had a case about a year and a half, two years earlier on the other side of the street where somebody was injured in the bike lane. And my expert told them that the way they've constructed the bike lane, instead of it being five feet wide, it was 11 feet wide, the same width as a driving lane. And somebody could mistake it for a driving lane and cause serious injury or death. What happened in this case, according to the testimony of the uninsured driver, he was behind a truck and then he just said, he looked, nobody's in the right lane. So he went and moved over into the right lane right at the wrong time and hit these two girls. So... I went to the city of Dana Point and I demanded their full insurance policy of $50 million. And I proved to them that all they had to do, since my expert had previously warned them, is get a bucket of paint and a stencil and put bike lane, bike lane, bike lane, right? Do something. And I had the depositions of their city manager proving that I had told them all of this. Eventually, they offered me $30 million. I refused to consider it. My demand was 50. And on the Friday before the Monday startup trial, they said, okay, give, we'll pay you the 50. So I took that case and I looked at it in a way that most people did not, in part because I had some prior knowledge about the roadway. Right. You had prior knowledge about the roadway from a prior case. And, and you looked at, they were passing on it because, well, look, classic case of terrible tragedy, uncollectible defendant. And you said, wait a second, there's another defendant. <laughs> there's another defendant exactly. here that contributed to this. Yeah. Exactly. One more thing. Uh, what I didn't know is when I had that settlement, and it was written up in the press and everywhere, I got a call uh, from, I can't remember who that was, that keeps track of all settlements and judgments nationwide. And they told me that $50 million PI settlement is the highest in United States history. I said, how about that? He said, yeah, you, you also have the third highest. I said, I have the third highest? That's what I had one for $28 million. The, the highest at that time turned out to be $29 million. So if I would have accepted the 30, it still would have been the highest. <laughs> okay. But 50 clearly was. So I found out that day that I had the highest first and third highest. And that's pretty good for a guy that didn't start out doing PI. Not too bad at all. And, uh, you know, you would have known had they tried to call and sell you a plaque after the, the other settlement, right? <laughs> that They would have. <laughs> you know, one question I had about the case is just, so you've got an uninsured driver out there who's obviously the guilty party, literally the guilty party, because you said that he was convicted and incarcerated for his crime. Right. How did you deal with that when you've got an obvious person who is the one who, who was the, you know, who did the deed, so to speak? How do you get around that and still get $50 million out of a, a different defendant? Well, you're right. I mean, you may want to apportion the liability and the driver you would think would get quite a bit. Yeah. However, we took the deposition of the driver in prison and uh, he said that he was driving behind a truck. He thought that bike lane was a travel lane. So I had enough information against the city that they didn't do anything to protect uh, those people in the bike lanes. So they were going down. And the thing is, I made a demand for their full policy limits. If they didn't pay the policy limits, uh, then they're exposed for whatever the jury would give me. 
So they finally settled for policy limits, $50 million. Was that literally in the courthouse? Yeah. Actually, on Friday, they said they'd pay. On Monday, we put it on the settlement. We got it drafted and completed. So it's a, it was a good day. Yep. And the beautiful thing about a settlement is there's no appeals, right? That's correct. No, no appeals. Well, let's talk about another case, this Beckman-Coulter case that you mentioned earlier, which is basically a business case, right? It started as a breach of contract case? It did. Beckman Culture is one of my favorites. It started out as a uh, $2 million breach of contract. Flextronics was supposed to make circuit boards for Beckman Culture, but then they had this $2 billion contract to make little circuit boards for cell phones and much, much easier. So they just told our client, you know, we're breaching our five-year agreement. You can sue us for damages. So we sued for $2 million. During discovery, I discovered a $300,000 fraud. And then we proceeded to go on. I demanded a million dollars, and they offered three hundred thousand. Later on, I demanded three million. They offered one million. We started. We're in trial now, and I amended the complaint uh, to conform to proof evidence that I had already presented, and two more causes of action. They were for economic duress, which is a subspecies of fraud, and I borrowed that cause of action from Arizona. It wasn't really recognized in California. It is now. And that came up basically in the course of the trial, their testimony. Yes, exactly. You know, not just fraud, not just breach of contract, but there was some economic duress here too. Definitely. We wanted to get the lifetime parts that we needed to be able to make the circuit boards ourselves. They didn't want to give us that unless we bought all the leftover stuff in their warehouse unrelated to our contract. So that's economic duress. And there's another example of economic duress. The jury came back unanimously after a three-month trial and gave me the $2 million, actually 2.1, on the first cause, 300000 and about a million and a quarter in punitives on the fraud. And I don't remember how much the compensatory damages were on the last two causes of action, but I do remember the punitive damages were $180 million on that third cause and $750 million on that fourth cause. All told, just north of $934 million. Those are some angry jurors. There are some angry jurors, <laughs> yeah. In a good way for your client. And we had one juror. Everybody committed that they, would, they had no reason, no philosophical or religious reason, not to give punitive damages if the law and the facts would support it. But when they went back in the jury room, one of them said, oh, I can't do punitive damages. Wait a minute, you promised Mr. Callahan that you would. So she came around and the jury was unanimous. However, I wish you would have just got me a billion, 934 million is just a little short. Yeah, round up, come on. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you interview the jurors afterwards? Is that how you found that out? Uh, yes. In fact, what I did is when I went for the reading of the verdict, I brought invitations to come to a party at my house. I felt pretty good about uh, the trial. <laughs> yeah. It is a good occasion for a little party, right? Yeah. I was not going to invite them if they didn't go the right way. Yep. So I sent limos to the jurors to pick them up. And I'd say like 90% of the jurors all came. And I talked to them at my house about what they were thinking. And now you can also meet the witnesses and bring along your family if you'd like to. And you know, just make it a, an event. And that's how I found out about that one juror who was going to be a holdout. Yeah. Wow. That's really neat. Did it raise the judge's eyebrows that you wanted to bring all the jurors out by limo and throw a <laughs> No, 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 <laughs> no. Uh, one thing I can tell you now, the judge 
who later became a good friend of mine, uh, I didn't know him beforehand. Uh, he came, he had the verdict in his hand at 2.30 in the afternoon. I think it was like a Tuesday. Okay. And I said, Your Honor, rather than read that verdict now, we had 16 jurors, four of them you designated as alternates at the end of the trial. Why don't we give those four an opportunity to come back, read the verdict in the morning, give those four an opportunity to come back, and give us an opportunity to talk about settlement. Hmm. He said, okay, we'll read it in the morning. What I did is I sent a press release out to everybody, and the courtroom <laughs> was packed in yeah. the morning. And both of these companies are publicly traded. Within 15 minutes of the verdict being oh read, gosh. both of this trading on the stocks, both, both companies frozen. Yeah. Uh, then the next day, by coincidence, Flextronics was scheduled to ring the bell to open up the market and talk about all the good things they're doing. Then the, uh, all the questions were, what the hell happened in California? <laughs> right. right. How'd you get yeah. your bell rung, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I have to ask, I mean, obviously by this time, uh, your career was already amazing and uh, you had a reputation that preceded you, but I mean, a nearly billion dollar verdict. I mean, that's just stratospheric. What did this do for your reputation and your career and your law practice? Well, I got to tell you, these victories that I've had really put me in a different category in Southern California. I am considered to be one of the best trial lawyers in Southern California. And so cases come to me now. They're coming to me then, but they just increased, increased. And the, the, the dollar amounts involved uh, would be up and up. And so it really made my life uh, uh, very enjoyable. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure it gave you the opportunity to really cherry pick the cases that you really thought you could get a great result on. Exactly. I want to ask you some kind of general closing questions. But first, you mentioned that it just interests me because I'm an IP litigator principally. Uh, can you tell us a little more about that farmer's insurance case? Because that's a really interesting one, too. Sure. Uh, on the farmers, we represented WaterCloud, a waterbed company, and they were sued for patent infringement. I tendered that claim to farmers for them to defend. And they said, we don't cover patent infringement. But under a, a general liability policy, and I won't get too deep in the weeds, you typically have coverage for bodily injury and property damage, and also advertising injury and personal injury, which is like defamation, etc. Under the advertising injury, the offenses under advertising injury were piracy and unfair competition. So I said, hey, patent infringement is clearly piracy, and patent infringement is clearly unfair competition. So I believe you do have a duty to defend. Uh, they said no. I said yes. We brought a, the lawsuit in federal court, and we won judgment on that issue of coverage. It got written up in the Wall Street Journal, and I, that's why I mentioned I used to travel around the nation telling all the patent lawyers, here's how you do it. Now, the insurance industry doesn't change really remarkably fast, but they did a couple of years later, changed their definition, eliminating piracy and unfair competition, and saying a misappropriation of style of doing business. I did the same thing, and I got rulings that misappropriation of style of doing business it also covers patent infringement. Oh, wow. Wow. And now, then they redid their policy again and say, <laughs> let's be clear. No we don't cover patent infringement. <laughs> no we don't bad. cover it. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. That's incredible. What was the amount of the verdict in that case? $58 million. $58 million. Wow. Another, another doozy. Yeah. It was a beaut. So, Dan... 
you know, you mentioned your your preparation, the hard work that you do uh, going into these cases. Uh, I think just listeners would like to hear a, a little bit, just a, a, a day in the life or a week in the life of Dan Callahan as he gets ready for trial. What do you do to prepare as a trial is approaching? Well, usually somebody else has worked up the case for me, and they bring in all the depositions, all the exhibits, and everything. They suggest I start reading these depositions first. So what I do, I read all the depots, I summarize the depositions myself, I read all the exhibits, I then figure out how I can put together the examinations. I do the examinations of each prospective witness, both on our side and on their side. And I also then prepare my opening statement, and I will deliver it a few times just before trial starts, a few days before. I believe in being very, very prepared. And I also believe in doing it now, not later. If you do some, if you put it off till tomorrow, you don't know what tomorrow brings. There may be something significant that takes your time, and now you're behind the eight ball, right? So you want to prepare as hard as you can. Prepare like you're fighting Goliath, and when they show up, they're probably not Goliath. And get it all done in advance so you have time to make changes. Let me just give you an example. I was representing a company against the plaintiffs, and the woman who was the Employment Lawyer of the Year uh, had the plaintiffs. I was totally prepared, and I listened to the testimony of the plaintiff, said, well, I felt like I was in a closed room with no doors or windows. I felt emotional distress. I thought, there's something about that. That reminds me of the Twilight Zone. And this is back when they had the jackets, you know, uh, before DVDs. And so I sent somebody to go get me all the Twilight Zone episodes. And lo and behold, I found the one on the jacket. He says, I felt like I was in a white room with no doors or windows. (laughs) So on Monday, I come back in. I've got the jacket in my hand. The jury can see I have it. The the witness that the plaintiff cannot. And I'm reading from it. So refresh. I think you told me on Monday that you felt kind of... (laughs) Closed room and no doors or windows? Yes. I What are you, a Twilight, Twilight Zone fan? I showed him this, and here's what it says. Yeah. The, jury went, the jury just lost it. They, had it. they just laughed and laughed and laughed, and it destroyed the credibility of the plaintiffs. I, I can only imagine. We right. won that 12-0. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I just won. I apologize. One quick little story. Love it. That's what this show's all about. I got trial lawyer of the year, business litigation trial lawyer of the year right before this case. And I get up and I go, oh, thank you very much for this award. And by the way, I also want to, it it means a lot to me in light of the other recipients. And then I said the woman's name, who got Employment Lawyer of the Year. I said, you're not going to believe this, but guess what? I just got hired this morning to be your opposing counsel in that case. (laughs) And the place went crazy. Ah, (laughs) It was fun. That's great. And then what about creativity? I mean, you gave us some great examples. I mean, I don't know what kind of advice you can give, but I mean, if lawyers want to sort of get that edge, I just think, you know, you, uh, you know, some of the promotional materials I've seen for you online and on your website, you know, talk about impossible cases and you take on what you call impossible cases and somehow pull a rabbit out of a hat. So what, what advice would you give to attorneys for, uh, for taking on those tougher cases and getting creative to get great results? Well, you don't want to go lockstep walking through the CCP and doing your discovery. Like First, I'll do this, and then I'll do that. Then you don't follow up on it, right? You really have to plan what you want to do, and you want to give yourself time. Uh, you don't put things off to the last minute. And the more you think about it, the more creative ideas just seem to come to you. And 
if you prepare hard and early, you have more time to be creative. And when you're driving to and from work, you're thinking about your case, odd thoughts come to you. And, oh, I got an idea. Like the self-help repossession. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, why don't I put it on legal size paper? Well, why don't I make it look like a form? As long as I cite the right statute, uh, why don't I just sign it, have my signature notarized? Right. So if, you, if you're cramming at the last second, there just isn't the, the breathing room to reflect and to have these ideas come to you. Max, that's exactly correct. Was the Twilight Zone one of those two? <laughs> Was that where uh, you saw it and because you were well-prepared, you could sort of... No, when he testified like that... It's more of a lightning bolt. It was a lightning bolt to me. I said, wait, wait, I've, I think I saw that episode. Uh-huh. You know? And then I uh, just had the time. I didn't have to prepare the next day for some other witnesses that I hadn't prepared for yet. Instead, I had the time to be able to look around and find some other stuff. Right, right. You know? So, and it's, that's just one example, but... If you have all your stuff ready, then when things come up during the course of the trial, you'll have the time to go ahead and address them. Where if you still have to do the uh, examinations of the two witnesses supposed to be coming tomorrow, you don't have the time to do the extra work. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dan, I want to respect your time, so let's wrap this up. But any final parting thoughts for our listeners? Jeez, I don't know. The only thing that's really made me successful, I think I've, I've talked about already, and it's preparation. Preparation and preparation, hard work. One thing that with me, I hate to lose. And when I first get this case, I don't know anything about circuit boards. So I have fear. So the fear makes me work harder so I can learn it. And by the time I get it all prepared, I no longer have fear. And I walk into the courtroom and I feel like the 800-pound gorilla. I just exude that. And the jury can see it. Everybody can see it. So it's a great way to help build a relationship with the jury. And also what you should do, I'll talk about voir dire, but that's a whole nother subject. I memorize the names of all the jurors when they first come up. Wow. Uh, it's just because the judge is talking to them about different things. Here's what the trial is going to be like, blah, blah, blah. I'm not listening to that. I'm just saying all their names. And I'm going down one row, then the next row, then the next row, then I bounce around in my own mind until I have it. I got them down. Now I get up to do my voir dire, and I call them by name. Yeah. And I, I don't go juror number one, two, three, four. I will take number eight, then number six, number 12, number four, and bounce around. And I'll ask him, you heard what uh, Mr. Gonzalez said. Do you agree with that? Well, if Mr. Gonzalez said something bad, and he says he agrees, we're looking at somebody who's going to get uh, struck. Uh, if somebody says something good, does anybody disagree with what Mr. Gonzalez said? If somebody disagrees with something good, well, they might get struck too. So it's, it's a relationship. The voir dire is just building relationship. Right. Literally from day one, you're building rapport with the jurors. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, with that, let me just say again, thank you for your time. Really enjoyed this episode. I know there's a lot more we could talk about. Maybe you'll come back again sometime. Anytime. Thank you. Now, now Dan, if uh, listeners want to contact you or find out more about you, where can they find you online? Well, I go to callahanconsulting.com. And my email address is dan at callahanconsulting.com. And the office telephone number for Callahan Consulting is 888-570-0000. And that's that's the best way to do it. By the way, there's a couple of videos on that Callahan Consulting that are hilarious. You should really take a look at them. 
there's a lead-in, one-minute lead-in on one, and the other has a two-minute lead-in, like Mission Impossible. It, it's just fun. Your listeners would really enjoy it. I can vouch for that. You've got one that's sort of a Magnum PI send-up, and you've got one that's a Mission Impossible. Yeah, the Magnum PI is about one minute, yeah. and then the Mission Impossible is just under two minutes. Then after that, I talk about different legal subjects. Yeah, those are really entertaining. They actually made me laugh out loud. I actually, it's one of those rare times where I walk in the other room carrying my laptop to my wife, you know, say, you got to look at this. This is a very unique and, and very entertaining form of uh, lawyer advertising. Just between you and I, I know there are people listening. Yeah. I'm doing another one uh, just before Christmas, and it's going to be a Rocky theme. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be great, running up the steps and all that stuff. There you go. Yeah. Except Rocky lost in the in Rocky One, but I don't think he lost again after that. Well, then I'll start with Rocky Two. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. So that'll be uh, on YouTube. Is that where they can find that one too? Once it drops. Yes, it'll also be on CallahanConsulting.com. Great. Well, I really enjoyed this again. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for appearing on the Litigation War Room, Dan. Thank you, Max. It was my pleasure. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Ford's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Ford's Legal has you covered. I use Ford's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Force Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Force Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at forcelegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war rooms.